living. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophies. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. When Donald Trump was finally indicted, as much as I wanted to sing this song, I simply couldn't. The word of the week is indicted. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. But while I've seen so many people overjoyed that the former president in disgrace was indicted on 34 felony counts, I just don't believe this fool is going to jail. As it is, an indictment won't stop him from running for president because as much as we like to pretend the founding fathers thought of everything, you can run for president while under investigation. You can run for president while in jail. So if anyone out there is thinking that Trump is going to bow out gracefully, I mean, have you met this man? Nothing about him has ever been gracious or graceful. Now, to get you caught up on what this shit is about, it boils down to this. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is alleging that Trump, his former lawyer Michael Cohen and David Pecker, the CEO of American Media, the company that publishes the National Enquirer, they all worked together to identify two women who allegedly had sex with Trump and they paid them to remain silent. The women appear to be former Playboy model Karen McDougal and porn actress Stormy Daniels. Now, Cohen, who's already pled guilty to a federal campaign finance crime in 2008 related to all of this, he supposedly paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 shortly before the 2016 election in order to secure her silence. Although, let's be real, with the way that election went, even if that had come to light then, before the election, would that really have turned his supporters off from voting for him? I doubt it. Also, according to Manhattan District Attorney Bragg, Trump then paid Cohen a total of $420,000 over the course of 2017, much of which was intended to reimburse Cohen for the payment to Daniels. Now, the crime isn't that Trump slept with a porn star or even that he paid for her to be silent. The felony counts are related to Trump allegedly falsifying entries on his business records to make it seem as if the payment to Stormy Daniels was just ordinary legal expenses paid to Cohen. The underplay for the overlay. Now, when Bill Clinton was in office and got hemmed up by his affair with Monica Lewinsky, he didn't get impeached because he had an affair. He got impeached because he lied about the affair to a federal grand jury. And he also obstructed justice. Now, I don't give a damn if you lie to a federal grand jury about the cereal you ate for breakfast. If you lie, they bust in that ass. The Clinton case is a good litmus test for what we can expect with Donald Trump. Clinton, like Trump, has the stain of being a president who was impeached while in office. But Clinton still finished his term, as did Trump. And at no point did he seriously think of resigning, just like Trump. Even if Trump is convicted of something, I just don't envision a scenario where Trump is in an orange jumpsuit. Now, don't get me wrong. It would be poetic justice. Considering all of Trump's shady dealings, if a payment to a porn star wound up taking him down, would a guy be the glory? 
But for Trump, this is all part of this reality show that's ongoing in his dumbass head. It says everything that they offered him the opportunity to be arraigned and arrested quietly out of full view of cameras. But he purposely chose the perp walk because he wanted the cameras and the attention. Nothing made him happier than to see the media's breathless coverage that cameras were trained on Trump Tower to catch a glimpse of him leaving to get arraigned. For Trump, this is just all a big show. I saw some people in the media talk about how Trump was visibly shaken when he got arraigned and all this other bullshit. This man does not believe he's going to jail and he doesn't fear any of this. Why would he? America doesn't exactly have the greatest track record of sending rich white men and certainly not a former president to jail. Indicted. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. Now, my guest today is an extremely accomplished director. But before she started that chapter of her career, she was a very well-known, extremely versatile actor. She has had starring roles in Being Mary Jane, Stitchers, Eureka, as well as in hit movies such as Posse, A Low Down Dirty Shame, I Spy, and The Great White Hype. Now, despite having a flourishing acting career, a conversation with Ava DuVernay changed her course into directing. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Sally Richardson Whitfield. dream monologue and you're fast asleep so i'll be quick great job using the colgate optic white overnight teeth whitening pen before bed when used as directed it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days so while i fly and talk to animals you're removing teeth stains with ease sweet dreams and when you wake up keep on living life to the brightest colgate optic white find it at all major retailers this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sally, I'm really happy I was able to get you on the podcast because you are a woman of about 62 jobs. I thought I had 62 <laughs> jobs. You have like, actually, you have 72 jobs because you are directing everything, doing everything, doing your thing. And we're going to dive deep into what I think has been a remarkable career turn for you. But before we get deeper into your story and the projects you're working on, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on the podcast and that is, when did you become unbothered? I think it's really as I've found this new career. Through directing, I really have found this um, confidence and this strength um, and this growth as a woman. And because of that, that is definitely giving me that not being bothered by most things, <laughs> if that's the answer. <laughs> No, that is a perfect answer. In terms of your career, your acting career, obviously a lot of people knew you from that. And you've made this wonderful pivot into directing all of the things, as I mentioned. And one 
thing that you said about this career turn you've made into directing that was super interesting to me is you said that as an actor, you felt, quote, replaceable. How did the industry make you feel that way? Well, I don't know if it's the same thing now as an actress, but you there was always this feeling that if you don't do what they're asking you to do in a role, they'll just get some other black actress. And you could easily, they just gonna bring in some other light-skinned girl and, 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 and call her uh, my name. Um, and I don't think that I was wrong. I mean, you know, there's only, at the time, there was only a few of us. Even now, there's only a few of us, right? Actresses that people care to see or that they that, that they elevate, right? So I just kind of felt like I had to go along a lot of the times and because I wanted to make sure I was working. I have to take care of my family. But I don't have that feeling as a director. And I don't know if it's just because times have changed or that I really found my true calling. I do know that what I do on a show, I bring sort of all these different skill sets at one time. And I don't find that a lot of people have that skill set. So at this point in my life, I know that I'm not being hired because I'm black. I'm not being hired because I'm a woman. I'm being hired because I really am absolutely the best person for this particular job. And it's a great feeling. I can imagine that it is because you went through that time in Hollywood. And as you said, it's kind of hard to know where the industry is now. It does feel like there are more black people who have decided to stop asking for permission mm -hmm. and are just like making shit, you know, like we don't care anymore. It does feel like that. But you came along in that time as an actor when you had 78 black actresses all going for one part. And it could range for, say, someone like Angela Bassett to you to like Lisa Ray. Like <laughs> y'all all going for the same thing. Take me through what that time was like when you have so many black actresses all going for very limited roles. How did you navigate that? You know, you really have to have that spiritual peace of mind, I think, and that faith in God to get you through it. Because I really would have to have that mantra of when I didn't get a job, that is not for you. Don't be mad about this other actress getting it. That job is not for you. I had good girlfriends who were there going, it's not your time, Sally. It's not your time. I look back now and a lot of those jobs that I would have gotten probably would have kept me from my blessings now as a director. I mean, I was successful enough, but if I had been where I really, you know, we all hope to be that big star getting awards, I don't think I would have found the thing that I'm really exceptionally good at. I see how when I see my contemporaries, how you have this unhappiness because it's such a peaks and valleys. And sometimes those valleys can be a long time. It can be a dry spell. And, and we all know that if somebody has a little more popularity, it doesn't matter if you're probably more perfect for the role, you're not getting that job. And there's just this feeling back then of not having real control over my life. Um, and that might be, you know, you're younger, you don't have control yet. But um, when I look at now when I'm doing a casting session and I see women in that hallway, of course, now it's Zoom, but <laughs> but in a hallway, reading sides, people I know and work a lot. And I see that they're still struggling to get that job. I just go, oof. I'm glad I'm not in this hallway anymore. Does it make you as a director because you 
do have such an influence about who's playing what role and, and how you see people. Do you maybe carry a different sensitivity than most directors because you've been through the process? I do, but then sometimes I'm probably harder on you. If I see people who come in <laughs> and you're not prepared, how I think you should be or how I would be, it irritates me. And I may give you no love then, not to your face, but I'd be like, they, they even come in here with these sides memorized. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I know the kind of preparation that it takes to get a job. At the same time, I think I show a little more uh, kindness in an audition because I've definitely been in auditions where you can just tell people are not listening to you. They're on their phone. They're distracted. And I would never disrespect an actor like that. No matter what, I want to leave you with a feeling that, you know, you don't want to go die when you leave this audition. I want to give you some love and uh, encouragement, no matter if you're going to get the job or not. So let's take it back to the beginning and go to your roots in Chicago. So what was it like growing up for you in Chicago during that time? I kind of had both sides. So I'm in an all black neighborhood then. And then I go to my school that's mostly white. And I think growing up like that definitely has helped me navigate the job I'm in now, the world I have now, because I can sort of kind of go from talking to this person to talking to this person and feel comfortable at all times. I, I notice a lot of people who don't have an opportunity to live in both of those worlds. It's hard to jump, say, where I am now and I ha having to deal with, honestly, a mostly white world, right? What is that skill set that I need to um, achieve what I'm trying to do, but also stay grounded in who I am now? I think most people know me. I'm, they go, Sally, you're exactly the same as when I met you coming from Chicago. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I think your lineage, you, your father is white, your mother is black. So during that period of time, you growing up in Chicago, how did you learn to navigate racial identity in a country that frankly is intent on people who have multi-ethnic backgrounds picking a side? So how did you navigate that growing up in Chicago at that time? Because I grew up mostly in Hyde Park, which seemed to have a lot more mixed marriages in the 60s, you know, which obviously in the big part of the world, there wasn't. I and my mother's black. So I didn't have that experience that I see with a lot of mixed people who are like, oh, I didn't know who I was for a while. And I, I just always knew I was a black woman. My mother's a black woman. And there's just, there's no confusion when you meet Marsha, who she is. And I am very much my mother. I know my father is white. I love that side of the family. I think for a while, there was a time period when my father didn't understand why I claim my blackness so much, you know, and I think it hurt him for a while. And I said, it had no has nothing to do with you, but I walk through this world as a black woman. And I need to accept that that's who I am. And that's who I feel I am. It was my mother. I grew up, you know, when I was at home, my parents were divorced at some point. So it's like my grandmother, my mother, my uncle, and most of my life was black. So there was just, there was never confusion. You mentioned how in Hyde Park, there was a lot of actual interracial couples, which I guess maybe be a little bit surprising given the, the time that it was. What was, I know you, your parents eventually divorced, but from what you could see, what was their experience like being an interracial couple in this environment? Well, I think it was definitely harder for them 
you know, I, they found the right neighborhood. Like I said, Hyde Park, it was the University of Chicago. So you have the South Side, um, Stony Island, which is, you know, they're kind of surrounded by more urban areas. But I think there's something about that university area that was, um, for some reason, this haven for more, you know, mixed couples. But if I look back, I think it was probably harder for my mother. Because now it's, you know, late 60s. She's got her afro. She is starting to, um, and she got married young. You know, she got married at 20. And I think for her trying to reclaim who she was as a black woman, it was very hard to walk through the streets married to someone white. I think it became hard for her. And then on the same side, my father I think for a while, it was a hard time for his white family who had never been really around. I don't think my father saw many black people ever until he moved to the city. Um, it was hard for them to accept it. Uh, so I think that they had a harder time than I did growing up. I think the older I got is when I really started to, and even the more I moved to LA, is when blackness and who I was and people being opposed to how black I am or how black I'm not, that's when it started to really get in my face. Why do you think that was? Because, I mean, Chicago is a pretty black city. I grew up in Detroit, so I grew up basically right next door. And so why do you, what do you account for that switch that you had to deal with once you moved to Los Angeles? Because I'm trying to get jobs as a black actress, right? So you don't look, it would either be Maybe it is a good thing, you know, for that particular job. They want something that's someone who is more like ambiguous, you know, whatever you want to say, you know, they don't know what you are. But if you're trying to get if there's that one role and they even the even for the white companies um, and black companies got this one role and we want to make sure everyone knows you're black. You we've checked off that thing. You look at me. They're not quite sure if I'm a check off that box. I, that's how I felt. I could be wrong. Maybe I just wasn't good enough for that job. But I did feel like a lot of times it came, you know, because everyone thinks, oh, you're fair skin. You're going to work because you're fair skin. That's the narrative. That is not necessarily true. If they want a black actress, they want a black actress. And I would fight against that. I didn't have these problems in Chicago. Again, I was never confused about my blackness. Everyone knew I was black. We all come in different colors. You know, every once in a while, there'd be somebody, you know, there'd be that one girl who'd be like, oh, you think you're cute because you light skin. And, you know, then I have to have my little fight. <laughs> but in my soul, I know who I was. So I just, it just didn't bother me there. LA is when I had to deal with it more. Not you, Sally. I can't imagine you being on some knuck if you book. <laughs> <laughs> feistier than most people know <laughs> okay all right I got you so when did you know when did you convince yourself that acting was something you wanted to pursue as as your life's work as your career you know I think that for me things have just sort of happened by happenstance and I followed it I I, I do say now it's like some word from God or spirit and I'm smart enough to just follow that voice Junior, senior year, I started dabbling in stuff in high school, print ads. And once I got out of high school, I didn't really go to, I didn't go to college right away because I just, I don't know, I was a little lost. And, but I was doing little small things in acting and I slowly started getting more and more work and I went, okay, 
it seems to be what I'm good at. So I was working enough in Chicago, decided if I'm going to do this, I got to go to LA. And I'm a planner, saved up enough money so that I could move to LA and have enough money to live on it for like a year. So I didn't have to wait tables and kind of, and within a year I got posse and things just sort of flowed from there. Even my directing career, Ava DuVernay, actually, I'm probably jumping to subjects here, but (laughs) Ava DuVernay was the first person who looked at me and said, while we were doing her first narrative film, I will follow and said, I think you're a director and you don't know it. And even then, like once she spoke those words, I went, huh. And there was something about her kind of breathing that life into me that I looked at my career and went, oh, yeah, I do always pay attention. I am at the monitor. I I am figuring out how I would do it. And then I went on the journey from there. And once I did my research and shadowed and did all of that and finally directed my first episode, I went, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. I didn't even know I was going to be giving up acting at that point. I thought, oh, I'm going to act half of the year and direct half of the year. And then all of a sudden things just snowballed and I didn't have time to act anymore. Uh, Now that is what they call first world problems. I didn't have time to act anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm so busy directing. I don't really have time to do this little acting stuff anymore. Uh, So you, you brought up Posse, which is a cult classic, a favorite movie of a, a lot of people. But if I'm understanding the backstory correctly, you were not their first choice for that role as Mario Van Peebles' love interest, correct? I was not. They hired somebody and she was shooting. You can say who it was because I know who it was. <laughs> I'm going to say who it is. Okay. I'm a, but I was, I, was, I was saving it. I was going to bring it out Okay, here. you were building it up. My bad. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to crash the moment. I didn't mean to crash the moment, but go ahead. <laughs> because the reason why I think I got into this audition because Blair Underwood, I had met him in LA through some people and this was happening. And he was like, I think he told Mario, this girl is perfect. Cause at the time, I think my hair was down to my butt. Uh, he was like this, she's supposed to be black an American Indian. This is the girl. And I felt like that too. I went to the audition, same people read with Mario. And I was like, this is my job. Nobody looks American Indian and black as much as me. This is me. And then I don't get the job. And they hire Stacy Dash. I used to care before. I don't care no more. It's no reason why you should care. <laughs> no, I don't care. <laughs> then I was disappointed that I get a call on a Saturday afternoon. And they were firing her. And by Sunday, I was on a plane. And by Monday, I was shooting. So, yes, I don't know what happened. The Lord be knowing. <laughs> Something didn't work out and uh, it worked out for me. <laughs> you know what? To prove that God is still working in my heart, I'm not going to say anything about Stacey Dash. I'm going to just move, <laughs> I'm gonna just move on. I didn't say because nothing the, either. The lo- <laughs> you said nothing. You just said a fact. A fact was she got fired and you were next woman up. So to have such a an experience in a big production like Posse, you know, what did that do for you as an actor to get this kind of role in this moment early on in your career? You know, I was such a, well, I guess it it seems like you're a kid. I was 24 
and it was the first big, I had done all these little tiny things, but I, I remember being in this one scene where there was explosions and I was running out of the bar and it blew up. And I was like, whoa, I'm in a real movie now. But I think that, you know, you would think at that point, you know, you start going, okay, I've made it. I'm here. People are like, okay, so you're famous now. I'm like, uh-uh. I said, I don't know what this is going to do. I was right. It's still, I mean, I think I started getting a little bit more work, but it wasn't like if I had been a white actress, it wasn't like that. Okay. I'm now I've been discovered and I'm going to be working like crazy. I did that movie and still had to, you know, and was still sitting there auditioning with everybody else and still doing the same thing I was doing before. I just happened to have a little bit of money uh, to still pay my bills. It wasn't life changing, you know, it was that first step, but it wasn't life changing. But it wasn't long after that, that you were in a low down, dirty shame, correct? Yeah. I don't know how much longer that was after that, but that's definitely the thing that built up to getting low down. I think I did another like TV movie in between there with Bill Cosby called I Spy Returns, where I played his daughter. I did that and maybe one other job and then came Low Down Dirty Shame, which um, I remember when Jada and I um, tested together, like a little chemistry test. And I think that's when I knew when it was both Jada and I, you know, because they were kind of, there was like two other people that they put together and another two they put together. But I was like, it's me and Jada. I'm feeling like this might be the one <laughs> I might be getting this job. <laughs> Tell me that the scene y'all rehearsed was the one where y'all kind of get into it. And she was like, you want a box? Because I can see through all that Maybelline. And yes, I know the movie that well. <laughs> yes, that is exactly the scene when I'm in her. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm that person. <laughs> Again, I look at those times. It feels like such a blur because I was so... I was young and I was just enjoying the moment of doing the job. Again, it, it, it built things, but it was never, I never felt in my acting career that I got this momentum that just would keep propelling me. It was always a struggle for me to get that next job. And I don't know if it, you know, you look back, I don't know if I just didn't have the right people around me at the time who, you know, who could help push, you know, okay, she has this movie, this movie. I just, you know, maybe that was the problem. Um, or again, maybe it just wasn't my destiny. But, you know, some people's career take off really early and some are later. So for me, there was always these small, great moments, but they never built to where I would have hoped they would have been as an actress. What is the closest you've come to quitting acting? Never. Again, even though I'm not acting now, I feel like this is the closest maybe as directing. This is a little different. This is almost like a retirement. Yeah. <laughs> almost a little bit. That's a little different. <laughs> but that would be the closest it would be. I never, ever thought I was going to give up. I knew that I was good at this. I was, you know, it's not like I was working enough. I, I'm pretty sure if I hadn't started directing, I'd be on a TV series now. I've had a few series. I'm, I always work. Never thought of quitting this business. This is what I was doing. This is what I love to do. So this would be the closest. <laughs> As you said before, Ava DuVernay was the one who, you know, said that she saw a director in you. So mm -hmm. 
What made you take the bold step? Because I know it didn't start with you immediately directing. As you mentioned, you had to shadow some people, like, you know, go through a bit of a learning curve. What gave you the motivation to take your career in this totally uncharted territory that you hadn't dealt with before? Well, it took it took a second. You know, like I said, I once David said that I was off. Uh, it was like I was off for hiatus. So I called this director called Eric Lonneville, named Eric Lonneville, big TV director, and shadowed him on some shows. Ava gave me some tapes on blocking, and I had books. But pretty much right away, I went to my show and you know and asked them if they would give me the opportunity. Uh, but so I, I directed that year, and then the next year I directed another episode. Then I did a short film, but I still, I had young kids and it wasn't necessarily the time to, and I was still on a series, wasn't time to make that big transition. Maybe a few years after I was done with the show, I got this other series called Stitchers. And there was something about that time. I said, you know what? I'm ready to really go back to directing because I do think it's what I'm supposed to be doing. This show is 10 episodes. This is where my, oh, I'm going to act and direct at the same time. It's all going to work out. I had, I was like, it's only 10 episodes a year. It's a perfect kind of show that I should be able to direct to. And then, which will give me some more episodes under my belt. And then I'm off for the, you know, for the rest of maybe another six months, I'll direct that time. And I start, I directed that show while doing it. I got an episode of Scandal to direct. And all of a sudden, once my show got canceled, I started getting job after job after job directing. And I just felt that there was a time where I had to make a decision because I was offered another TV show. So I think that was it. And I had to make the decision. And I asked them for some ridiculous amount of money so to make my decision easier because I'm like, well, they ain't going to give me that money. So tell them I want this. <laughs> now, see, if they had said yes, if they had said yes. No, they did say yes. They did. OK. My manager came back and he goes, they said yes. And I was like, oh, but I had this episode for Showtime called I'm Dying Up Here. And my goal of directing was to get to those more premium outlets. And that was like getting a show like that at a certain point is a game changer because now that sets you up to get stuff for HBO and Apple. And those are the kind of shows I wanted to get to. So if I had taken this acting job, it would have stopped what I was already doing. And I had to make a choice. And I had to say, I always say I had to say, no to the short money and yes to what was going to be the rest of my life. It was the right decision. Now that is some free jewelry right there because I think uh, a lot of times people, they do think in the short term, like you said, you gave them an outrageous amount of money just to see if they would do it. They did it. And maybe um, going forward, that was something that taught you how much you were going to love really doing this, that you were in it for real. That was the proof that you were in it for real because you turned down something that would have been easy for you to do, to do the thing that you will probably do from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a gem. I know you have more gems and I want to get to them because I want to ask you about Winning Time, The Gilded Age. So many of the things that you have directed, especially Winning Time, because I'm very curious as to 
how you felt like that was received, especially by um, the Lakers, the people who actually live those lives. So I'm going to get your thoughts on that and much more. We'll be back with more with Sally Richardson Whitfield. I mentioned a few times before that I was a huge tomboy growing up. And this episode, I got a story to tell about how one of my childhood tomboy dreams came true. So as a kid, I was really, really, really into wrestling. In fact, I was so into wrestling that I had wrestling action figures. In fact, I was so into wrestling that at school, me and my friends would try to imitate the scaffold matches that we saw when we watched wrestling on television. Me and my friend Corey, we used to be the Road Warriors, which was this great, incredible tag team that we grew up idolizing. Now, to some of y'all, that sounds like total gibberish. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But for those who know, I was a Hulkamaniac. And this is before Hulk Hogan was outed as a huge racist. And on Saturday nights, I used to stay up and watch main event. And on Saturday mornings, I used to also watch wrestling. In other words, wrestling was everything. The biggest event in professional wrestling is WrestleMania. It's their Super Bowl, their NBA Finals, their Masters Tournament. It is the premier event for the sport. And last weekend, I got to attend my very first WrestleMania. And it was spectacular. Now, I admit that I haven't followed wrestling very closely since I was a kid. But being in that environment made me think of how badly I wanted to go to WrestleMania as a kid. Or how I begged my grandmother to let me order WrestleMania on pay-per-view. Shit was like $9.95 back then. But you know, black folks didn't play that whole pay-per-view shit. I mean, I don't care if it was $1.99. A black parent was going to act like, whatever the cost, that you had to basically apply for an adjustable rate mortgage to get it. They acted like that shit was just super expensive. Anyway, I got to meet a few of the top wrestlers. And here's what the average person probably doesn't know. Wrestling is scripted, but it's not fake. The body slams are real. The acrobatics off the top rope are real. The athleticism these wrestlers have is real. The pain they experience is extremely real. Now, me and my husband had an absolute blast. We met a lot of the wrestlers who participated in the event, and they are extremely nice people. Shout out to my man, Titus O'Neill, who was there as a commentator. He really made it happen when it came to meeting a lot of the wrestlers who were making their appearance in WrestleMania. Anyway, I often have these moments where I just can't believe I'm in a certain space. And I think about what I would have told my younger self about the experiences I'm blessed to have now. I do know this much. Little Jamel would not believe me. And now back to more with Sally Richardson Whitfield. Sally, in your mind, do you think your acting career is over? Like, is there something that could come your way that they said, hey, we got this great role? Could you be enticed back or do you consider it just on pause or is it over for you? I think it's on pause now. I would love, because I've been getting this question a lot lately. I would love to find something that I thought was good enough to sink my teeth into. Um, I do have some, when I think about it, I'm a little nervous and I have anxiety about it because I haven't been in front of uh, the screen for so long. I think by the, now I'm going to be somebody's grandmother when I come back in. <laughs> Definitely somebody's mama. Um, <laughs> Not at all. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, my daughter is going to college this year, but I'm just saying. 
you know, as a woman, you know, you do get that feeling like I, I had already stopped looking at myself on camera. Like it just made me all, you know, as women, unfortunately, yeah, and don't think it's a good thing. All I see is age and I go, oh, what am I doing? Um, but I would love to. And, and I think that after working on such amazing shows with talent that I never thought I would be directing in my life, it's definitely given me the bug again. Because I think I realized that uh, when I was acting before, I was safe. I always did a really good performance. But I think in order, and I tell actors I work with this, in order to be great, you have to be really willing to look stupid and fail. And I think after watching so many great people in the last few years, uh, I'd be willing to really put my put myself out there and be willing to be wrong. It's what makes me a good director because I am willing to be wrong. And I am, and I have no fear. I have no fear in what I'm imagining the scene should be, how it should look, how I should direct it. I just go for it. And it is what it is. And I haven't found myself to be wrong. So in order to be great, you just really need to be brave. And I think I'm ready to do that now if I were to act again. The landscape for Black women who are directing is kind of tough to tell what that landscape actually is. Small group of you, for sure. Talented group, just not a, a large enough group. And it could be a matter of some people not having access and opportunity. How do you see what the landscape looks like for Black women who want to be in the director's chair right now? I do think it's definitely much more open than it was. I mean, and I think that Ava honestly started that by having all women directing Queen Sugar. Maybe the first year there were some white directors there too, but it's definitely given a, a big opportunity to a lot of black female directors. So I do think it's an opening there, but I do still see the the problem with the opportunity to grow. I think it's part of the reason why I am a workaholic and spend so much time to be the best because I know that any other black directors, black women who come after me, if I don't do a good job, I really can mess it up for everyone. And I think that other black directors, women directors in particular, who um, are working a lot, I think they think that way too. Like you just have to be better. You have to be prepared. It breaks my heart when I see other women directors, black women directors who come in and they haven't done the work, but there's more has to be done, especially in the feature world. I mean, look at Gina. <laughs> she should have def definitely been, definitely been nominated, but for the woman King. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the burden of, expectation that's put on you that you know when you are directing you're not just directing for yourself you're directing in hopes that other women like who might look like you will get an opportunity if you do a good job but how much of that is a unfair burden for you to carry because I feel like racial progress is when we have the right to be mediocre <laughs> right and we can still get work right <laughs> <laughs> we just want to be like them I think it doesn't because I think the reason why I do well on winning time, I was an athlete growing up. I am competitive and I want to win, but there's not enough of us. We have to all be great right now to get the right to be mediocre. <laughs>
So, Sally, you're working on one of my favorite projects, Winning Time. And I have a, a bit of a close and personal relationship with it in the sense of not only the Michigan State's own Magic Johnson, we went to the same alma mater, but also the author of the book, Jeff Perlman, is a friend of mine, which is what this series is based off of. Now, um, I'm sure you're aware, Magic, Kareem, some of the Laker family and faithful were not very happy that this project was being made. They weren't very happy with the what was the outcome. I thought the series was great. They didn't think so. As someone who has directed uh, some of Winning Time, what was your reaction to their sort of negative response to it? I'm going to start with your kind of disclaimer. I didn't write it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. You did not. <laughs> I came in last year and directed uh, the last two. And then this year, of course, now I'm one of the um, executive producers. So I am a little bit more involved this year. But listen, I would understand if somebody was doing my life story, just like if someone was doing your life story and you didn't have any part of it, that would be disturbing. I can't imagine that anybody would be happy about it. That being said, I think that, or at least um, if you have them tell it, everyone who's complaining about the show hasn't actually watched the whole series. So it may be if they would give it an opportunity that they would see that I, I don't think that the writers are trying to disparage the Lakers in any way. Um, it's obviously based on the book and um, it's more in honor of them, but you know, the, Hey, listen, when Lakers were, when, you know, when during this time period, you didn't have social media. It was a different kind of walk through the world. Different things were allowed and those guys and that whole franchise were able to hide in a different way than it is now, right? So I think they should watch the show. I'm just going to say, it. I think they should watch the show. I think that the actors portraying them are doing an amazing job. I think that uh, Quincy, who's playing Magic, and John C. Riley playing Jerry Buss are doing phenomenal performances and um, really feel like these guys, you know, like they have their heart and essence. So what has it been like for you to work with this cast? Because as you mentioned, John C. Riley, who I've always loved, you're working with some newcomers and Quincy, who's playing uh, Magic Johnson. Like, what is it like for you as a director to have this kind of cast? Was well, kind of like you have both. I have like John C. Riley, where you only have to give him like maybe some tweaks because he knows what he's doing. He's amazing. And then you have Quincy, who in the beginning is new, you know, and, but you'd have to give him some guidance. But let me tell you, this season, this kid has grown. He is so amazing and, and, and just a wonderful talent that is going to go way beyond just playing Magic Johnson. It's tough. You have to deal with, you know, these veteran actors, and then you have these young guys that you ha you get a chance to craft. As a director, it's it's an amazing time for me because I get to use a lot of different skill sets. You've indicated before that you know that the decision makers on this project they very much wanted to you know have somebody like you in there, a female director, somebody who could bring a certain sensibility to this project. But from your side of it, when you were introduced to the material. What was it about the material that made you want to be involved with this? Well, I've always loved, I'm a basketball girl, played in high school, kids play, husband play, you know. But for me, I love a challenge. So 
I haven't done a basketball like movie or show. And it's, it, it, honestly, it is like shooting a huge action film. Every time I do a job, I'm, I'm trying to do something different and bigger and better. And can I conquer it? And, and now I also, for me, it's an amazing cast of people. That is another thing to conquer. So it, I, I think a lot of it is about loving basketball, but also going, okay, this is something new and I'm about to kick its ass. <laughs> <laughs> now, as, as a career sports journalist, whenever there's a sports movie or a series, I pay particular attention to the actual sports scenes, all right, to the basketball scenes. And I saw, I don't know who posted this, but I saw a clip of how you all shoot the basketball scenes. And it was fascinating to see that because you played basketball, given your experience, how much did you want these scenes? What was the level of investment you put in it? Because you actually played the sport. First of all, I have to study it in a different way because this is not now basketball. This is 80s basketball. There are things that you can't do. Like a lot of times I have to go to the players. I'm like, that's a fantastic dunk. But nobody was doing that back then. I need you. You know, the, these young guys, they want to hang on the rim. They want like nobody was high fiving. You can't hang on the rim. Dr. J didn't dunk like that. It's almost like when I was doing Gilded Age, I had to watch the etiquette very carefully. I also had to watch to make sure our basketball didn't get too modern. And that's hard because the new stuff can be so exciting. So it's, and also we're recreating scenes from basketball history that there is footage. So how do we give an homage to that? And we do that very well by really using those same cameras and it looks recreating it exactly. But if we were just doing that, you might as well just watch the old footage. People were interested in what was the drama on the floor at that time. And I think that that is what I tried to um, capture as much as, po uh, as possible, is what is the narrative inside, um, you know, this, this thing that you only saw from the outside and what, you know, how did Larry and Magic look at each other? What were they thinking when you're down on the floor? And that's when you see the guy on the, on the skater, on, like we call a little skater cam. He's getting that narrative inside of the game that you cannot get just from a TV view. And I think that that's what makes our basketball special. Yeah, because that, that was the the clip I saw on social media. It's like he was on the skater camera. I was like, I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> like, I had no idea. It was magical. He is amazing. And he gets things that I've just never seen before. And this season, we have utilized him in a lot of other different scenarios because it just works so well. Obviously, as an actor, um, and especially as a Black actor, you always kind of have to prove yourself. What are the different ways that you've had to prove yourself as a, a Black female director in this business? I think that for me, I just have to be more prepared than anyone at all times. And maybe that's just something I, a burden I've taken on, but I just feel like it's important that I have to be more prepared than any director coming in there because I don't have the opportunity to fail. But at the same time, you have to be willing to fail to be great. So, so how do you balance that? <laughs> I think it's about being brave 
uh, sticking to my decisions. And then again, just putting in that extra work. It's very easy after doing uh, episode after episode of TV uh, for people to get lazy. I see people come in who are like that. I, I've worked with directors as an actor who be, after you know time have become complacent and they're like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Yeah, you can do that, but I can't afford to mess up and I wouldn't feel comfortable like that. So I, I think that the special sauce for me is that I'm brave, but I'm also way over prepared so that it leaves less room for failure. Do you feel like your margin of error is different as a director than it was as an actress? Well, uh, yeah, there is a pressure of knowing it's all on your shoulder. Nobody is looking at the film going, oh, the editor did something weird or the, oh, it's, it's not good because of that actor. It really comes down to, and even, oh, the writing maybe wasn't great. Nobody sees that. They see the directing and they see what does it look like as one whole thing. So there is a different pressure on my shoulder than if it was just me acting in one scene and everything wasn't about me. How much thought have you given to where your career might be if you started off directing as opposed to acting? I think that these 30 years that I was acting really was my training ground. It was my university. And it's what makes me really good at what I do. I think that it was the right path for me. And that's really it. Like, I, I, I would not change anything. I think this was how it was supposed to be. I'm always fascinated by um, couples who are in the same industry. And you and your husband, both actors. Uh, I think you've actually directed him. Am I-, I have. I have on Queen Sugar. <laughs> yeah, Queen Sugar. That's yeah, what it was, yeah. right? So, you, yeah, you all have, uh, have worked together um, and you're in the same profession. Is that more helpful than it is harmful? It's such a hard thing. I, I think that Dondre would say that we are not competitive at all, though I think it's almost impossible for you not to be because you're in the same business. I think for me, he he has been such a great support system of understanding um, what I'm trying to do, especially as a director now, and what that means is a change in my life. And I don't know, I don't know if someone else outside of the business can truly understand the amount of hours that we have to put in in the entertainment business. I mean, it is an enormous amount of hours. I was taking calls on my way to Valentine's dinner about editing. And I take those calls. And he understands that. He understands that this is not a nine to five. This is 24 hours a day. And if I need to answer the phone about something, I'm going to answer the phone. So I I find it helpful. And I've been, I, I cannot tell you how lucky I've been that my husband has supported me through this transition because I could not have done it without him. And I could not have, with our children too. Um, and he happened to be able to be working in LA at the time while I was gone so much. Uh, it's the only reason that my kids are still sane. <laughs> <laughs> How do you all handle giving one another constructive criticism? Not well at all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he wants my, and I would try to put it on him. Like, like I don't think he really wants my opinion about stuff. 
especially, you know, I'd be trying to help him with something. I'm like, I do this for a living. I'm a director. Listen to what I have to say. I don't think he wants my opinion. And honestly, I, I, if I think about it, I mean, I do want your opinion, but if it's different than mine, I don't want it. <laughs> So you guys are just like every married couple. <laughs> they were just like every married couple. I'm like, I asked you your opinion, but that don't sound right to me. So I'm going to go back to my opinion. <laughs> oh, well, has he ever given you a note about a project you've either acted on or, or directed that maybe it created a bit of a disagreement? <laughs> Absolutely. And I can't even remember, but I know we will argue about some stuff or he'll be given some opinion. I'm just like, I just said to watch it. I didn't need all of that information. Uh, <laughs> so like it is, it is like any marriage. You know, my husband and I both play golf and he already knows, like we go out to play golf and somebody gives me their they opinion on my swing. He's like, oh Lord, don't even say nothing to her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've seen you say in a previous interview that you and him are very opposite. In which ways are you opposite? I think, um, oh my God. Look, you, I'm, look I'm trying to, I don't want to get me in trouble. See, I'm going to be arguing when I leave here. My <laughs> husband. <laughs> Listen, you said it before. You just didn't explain how. I was like, I just wanted to know, well, how are you opposite? <laughs> I think that my husband is, um, is much more of an extrovert than I am, although I seem like I am. He very much will go into a room, take over, um, be the center of attention, hold everyone's attention. And although I have that gear because of what I do, I'm more laid back in that. I don't necessarily, I get a little bit uncomfortable um, having to take the center of attention. And I think that's where we're different. Does that make sense? No, it does. Because I, I, listen, there's a lot of people just because you do something that's front facing yeah. that people see who don't actually want to be the center of attention. I'm like that way. You know, when, when me and my husband got married, the most terrifying thing for me was thinking about walking down the aisle because the whole room is staring at you. And I was like, that's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Having to go, like my husband can go do a speaking engagement and get on that stage and it's a 500 people in there and he has got it. He's taking it. And I'm like, you want me to moderate a panel? Holy shit. Like it just makes me so nervous. I think it's one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous about going back to acting because that puts me front and center in a different way. As a director, I'm definitely front and center, but I, maybe it's just unconscious. I'm just, you know, I'm just telling people what to do. I'm moving around, but I'm not having to deal with an audience. It's just a different gear. And I think that's really what makes us different. Well, Sally, even though I know you wanted to make sure that you left this interview without getting in trouble, I'm about to get you in trouble right uh -oh. now because <laughs> <laughs> there's a game that I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. This is where the controversy goes down. So okay, all right. This is where the trouble starts right here. All right. So who's the better golfer, you or DeAndre? Oh, DeAndre, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. And my son has now overtaken me too. So I'm definitely not the best. Oh no. Oh yeah. <laughs> He's 14, and he is. Out of here. He's out of here. Oh, oh <laughs> man. All right. Between you and Dondre, who wins more arguments? 
He does. And you know why? I don't like to argue. <laughs> I just be like, all right, I'm good. If that's what you think. So you just let him have it. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, you're wrong, but you want to win? Great. <laughs> I let him think he won. <laughs> you let him think he won. It, listen, it's a tactic that all wives have to know. It's like, you got to let him sometimes have it. It's 25 years, honey. <laughs> that's a pro tip that those listening should pick up and adhere to. Black Lightning or Luke Cage? Luke Cage. Yeah. I know you directed both. I don't, I, I wish you would have directed my episode when I made the cameo on there. <laughs> I was like, I didn't see you. Yeah. But I, I love both of those shows so very much. Yeah. I like, it, it's hard, but yeah. Luke Cage is a little more, uh, or at least at the time, it was a little more uh, edgy and, you know, you can do different things on Netflix and, you know, I don't know, but. Are there any specific differences to when you're entering sort of a, a comic book world, like as a director, like anything different you have to do because this is you're dealing with, com you know, a comic book universe? It honestly, it's any show you go into, you have to look at what is the style of that show. And so every show I have to look at differently. And I, I think when I think of comics and action, it becomes of a, a lot of dynamic camera moves and wider lenses and like pulling and pushing and just energy and movement and framing different so that the framing is a little more um, edgy and dynamic. It's just a different kind of look than I would do with just two people talking in a romance. So absolutely. But it really is. Every show is different. And finally. Would you rather direct a movie that made a billion dollars or direct a movie that won an Oscar? Well, I never answer these things just with one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> I think I would take the Oscar. Now, why is that? Because honestly, that would be much more fulfilling as an artist. And that's why I direct. Maybe I could have stayed with acting and been making a lot more money. I don't know. Maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Some of these directors, they're not doing too bad. You know what I'm saying? I may be wrong. But you okay. know what? I think. But honestly, no, it's, it's about that. I do this because I love it and for the work and for the acting. So I would pick the Oscar. And then more than likely, that Oscar probably would lead to the billion dollar movie. Anyway. The billion dollar movie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> well, listen, Sally, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I have no doubt you're going to get there, be it the billion dollars or the Oscar. <laughs> you're probably going to wind up doing both with the way that your career, your directing career has gone. I can't wait to the next season of Winning Time. It was such a great show to watch as well as some of your other projects. So appreciate you joining me here on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Thank you, darling. I have been looking forward to this forever. So I appreciate you having me on. All right, uh, Sally is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered. Last weekend was the conclusion of the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. And instead of the banner headline being that the Women's NCAA Championship game garnered a record 9.9 .9 million viewers, making it the most watched women's basketball game in history, 
The biggest storyline that came out of that game involved LSU's Angel Reese and Iowa's Caitlin Clark and a hand gesture. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Now, LSU won the national championship because they beat the absolute breaks off of Iowa, who was this year's tournament darling. And when the game was well in hand, Angel Reese did the you can't see me gesture where she just waved her hand in front of her face and pointed to her ring finger, indicating that she got this ring and Caitlin Clark didn't because she was looking at her the whole time. So that's who she was talking shit to. Now, keep in mind, Caitlin Clark, she did the same gesture against Louisville the previous weekend, which is why Angel Reese was just giving her a dose of her own medicine. And listen, in that game against Louisville, Caitlin Clark was unreal. She put up 41 points, 10 rebounds, and 12 assists. It was the first ever 40-point triple-double in NCAA tournament history. And she let Louisville know about it. Now, y'all know the rules of the game. If you talk shit, you better be able to take it. If you don't want somebody talking shit, then you better be able to beat them. But unfortunately, there's another rule that supersedes that rule. If a white player talks shit, they're playing with passion. If a black player does it, they're a disgrace to the game. Angel Reese is black. And her talking cash shit to Caitlin Clark made a lot of white folks mad as fuck. I mean, they were hot as motherfucking fish grease. Keith Oberman, former ESPN and MSNBC host, called Reese a, quote, fucking idiot. And the founder of Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy, said Reese was a, quote, classless piece of shit. By the way, Portnoy is the same guy who has been accused multiple times of sexual misconduct, likes to make rape jokes, called my former ESPN colleague Sam Ponder a, quote, fucking slut. So that guy calling Angel Reese a classless piece of shit is like Donald Trump calling somebody else a crook. Now, none of this classless energy was there when Caitlin Clark was stunting all over people. Again, she did that same shit to Louisville and she was applauded for it. In fact, wrestler turned actor John Cena, who popularized the you can't see me gesture when he was at the height of his wrestling career, he tweeted Clark telling her, Even if they could see you, they couldn't guard you. ESPN also ran a whole ass segment talking about Caitlyn's clapbacks when they broke down all the time she talked her shit and showed up her opponents. Now, I don't care if Clark or any woman talks their shit because it adds entertainment value to the game. We see men do this shit all the time in sports. They talk shit. They get in people's faces. They showboat. And when they do it, it's just considered part of the game. It's just them showing emotion. Well, except if you're black. Bottom line is a lot of people have a problem with Angel Reese clowning on the white girl because Angel Reese refuses to minimize herself for the comfort of others. Let's critique about who I was. I don't fit the narrative. I don't fit in the box that y'all want me to be in. I'm too hood. I'm too ghetto. Y'all told me that all year. But when other people do it, y'all don't say nothing. Angel Reese is not the problem and neither is a hand gesture. The problem is is that confident, cocky, unapologetic black girls and women scare the shit out of people. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. 
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7, 5, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.